grace, mercy, and peace are yours through the triune God. Whether you're listening from far away or next to beautiful Seneca Lake, we hope that through the reading and proclaiming of Scripture, you hear God's wisdom, challenge, and blessing for you today. If you're able to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m., we at Hector Presbyterian Church would love to share Christ's peace with you. A few weeks ago, if you were invited to a virtual Seder for Passover, your hosts probably used a Haggadah. A Haggadah helps the people around the table tell the story of the Israelites' liberation from bondage through the Seder meal, sometimes weaving into the ritual today's struggles for freedom. Whatever resource your host used, it likely was not decorated with images of people with birds' heads. You heard that correctly, people with birds' heads. The birds' heads Haggadah is the oldest illuminated Haggadah we know of, created about 700 years ago in Bavaria. Throughout its pages, Jewish men, women, and children are depicted preparing for and celebrating Passover. Many of the men have beards. Many of the women wear headscarves. They all have beaks. No one knows exactly why, but most people suspect that the illustrator intended to Respect the commandment against making engraved images. It's number two in the Big Ten, the prohibition against idols. It doesn't forbid visual art outright, but it's suspicious of human nature's tendency to bow down before what we can see. As the late rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs observed, Judaism is a culture of the ear, not the eye. As a religion of the invisible God, it attaches sanctity to words heard rather than objects seen. And yet here in Exodus, God fills artists with the spirit it's not the usual pattern, so look closer. Unlike the synagogue, which reads through the first five books of our shared scripture every year, the church has rarely met Bezalel in a holy ob. I never have. Granted, there are more exciting stories from Exodus to tell, a burning bush, Plagues of blood and frogs and locusts, a sea that splits in half. Bezalel and Oholiab didn't make it into DreamWorks, the Prince of Egypt. 
but they made a dream a reality. God's dwelling among the liberated people. Now, God among us is nothing new. From walking in the Garden of Eden to sitting down with Abraham for lunch to the thunder and thick darkness on Mount Sinai, the Creator chooses intimate relationship with creation. In fact, this newest dwelling, sometimes called the tabernacle, sometimes called the tent of meeting, was Mount Sinai in miniature. Wherever the liberated people went, whether in the wilderness or in the promised land, the God who made promises at Sinai would always be with them. Who can translate a mountain into a meeting tent? The same folks who, as the poet William Blake said, can see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wildflower. For such a task, God pours out the Holy Spirit on artists. Meet Oholiab, Ahisamach's son, spirit filled with a know-how for cutting gems, weaving fabric and threading richly colored yarns into intricate designs. Watch how his hands work. Try to follow his fingers moving with quick intuition around the blue and purple and scarlet threads. His curtains hanging in the tent of meeting are an homage to the sky at dusk. The colors that surround the community when they greet the Sabbath and praise the God who rests. Meet Bezalel, Yuri's son, the project lead. Graced with the power of the Most High, he can draft plans, carve wood, set gemstones, and coax metal into new shapes. Watch as he stokes the coals of the brazier See how he heats the gold until it yields to the precise tapping of his hammer. The lampstand that emerges from his workshop will shed light on the priests as they lead the community in worship. A reflection of the flames that danced within but did not destroy the bush by which God commissioned Moses. Meet Oholiab, meet Bezalel, and meet the others, nameless in our Bible's pages, but whose materials and skill raised the meeting place of heaven and earth. Moses invited them to lend a hand, and their response overflowed with enthusiasm. Take a listen to the account from Exodus. Everyone who was excited and eager to participate brought the living God's gift offerings to be used for building the meeting tent and all its furnishings and for the holy clothes, 
both men and women came forward. Everyone who was eager to participate brought pins, earrings, rings, and necklaces, all sorts of gold objects. Everyone raised an uplifted offering of gold to the living God. And everyone who had blue or purple or deep red yarn or fine linen or goat's hair or ram's skins dyed red or beaded leather brought them. Everyone who could make a gift offering of silver or copper brought it as the living God's gift offering. Everyone who had acacia wood that could be used in any kind of building work brought it. All the skilled women spun cloth with their hands and brought what they had spun in blue and purple and deep red yarns and fine linen. All the women who were eager to use their skill spun the goat's hair. The chiefs brought gemstones and gems to be set in the priest's vest and in the chest pendant, spices and oil for light and for the anointing oil and for the sweet-smelling incense. All the Israelite men and women who were eager to contribute something for the work that the living God had commanded Moses to do brought it as a spontaneous gift to the living God. So many gifts, so many skills, so many hands, all empowered by the same Spirit. Like I said, most Christians have never met Bezalel and Oholiab and the crew. If we had, I bet that we would try not to over-spiritualize the notion of spiritual gifts. After all, in the mind of the Apostle Paul, gifts from the Holy Spirit are meant for the common good. They are meant to build up God's dwelling among us. And for Christians, that means the public way of living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, in our culture, spiritual means something private, you know, something inside us that we can choose to express or not. But for our ancestors in faith, spiritual gifts meant manifestations or demonstrations of divine power on full display. Similarly, in our culture, the word gift has an individual meaning. A gift is something I give to you. Once it's given, it's yours to play with or to use or to set aside because while the thought is lovely, you don't really need the complete box set of Frasier on DVD. It's on Netflix. But for our ancestors in faith, the Spirit doesn't give presence. The Spirit gives grace. The fancy church word is charism, but the root is God's grace and favor shining on us. 
It's not yours to set aside. It lights you up from the inside. Each of us has received this luminous grace, Paul says, this public power of God, all for the purpose of making the world more like the kingdom of heaven. We might resist it or try to hide this light, but I think that if we did, we would resemble zombies, the walking dead, if we said, nope, no grace for me. Oh, but glory to God, Jesus is risen. Christ is alive in the spirit, and so are we. And living in the spirit means that there is no limit to what God can do with the grace poured out on us. This week, I'll admit, I had moments when I felt like a zombie, like the walking dead. It took me a minute to realize that my limbs were stiff from sadness. I felt deep sadness after my hometown, Minneapolis, witnessed another unnecessary death. Another innocent young person shot by those meant to serve. Now, I didn't know Dante Wright personally, but I do know the spirit who graced him with gifts. And I know that the same spirit groans over his death with sighs too deep for words. That was Sunday. On Wednesday, I felt another zombie bite when I learned that Corey Drake had died. If I had grown up in Hector, I would have gone to high school with Corey. I shared in our weekly newsletter these words from Thomas Long, who, with Thomas Lynch, wrote the book The Good Funeral. Long observes that a person's death is not only a biological occurrence, nor is it merely a private affair. Any human being's death is a tear in the social fabric. A tear in the social fabric. When I passed along these words to a classmate of Corey's, he nodded and replied, it's a good thing that here in Hector, we know how to mend things. Talk about grace lighting us up from the inside. Corey was a talented artist and an exceptional brewer, and his own share of grace made the world a better place. You can see his handiwork on Brett Beardsley's van, Juicy, which carries goodwill and good music near and far. When locals gather at Two Goats, you can reconnect with your neighbors over a beer Corey helped create. 
And if you were lucky enough to know him as a friend, you know how easily and without shame Corey said, I love you. That's not a common thing, especially among men. But the true life was on full display in Corey Drake's life. And what a fitting reminder, too, that of all the gifts that the Spirit bestows, of all the grace spilling out of our pores, love is the greatest of all. Friends, we know how to mend things. It's one of our charisms, one of the manifestations of resurrection power God has given this community. Let us embrace then what the Spirit is doing among us and through us and among and through our neighbors whom we are blessed to serve. For such grace, let us give all glory and all gratitude to God, the love who gave us birth, the love who goes on ahead, love encircling us every step of the journey. Amen.